electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Power Lunch, everybody. Alongside Courtney Reagan, I'm Tyler Madison. Glad you could join us on this February 29th. It is the rarest day on the calendar, and we mark it uh, as Rare Disease Day. It is officially such. A day to bring attention to disorders affecting relatively few people individually, but when you realize there are thousands of these diseases out there, combined they affect millions of families. Yeah, the statistics are pretty staggering actually. Coming up, we will talk to the head of the National Organization for Rare Disorders about the scope of the problem. You might be surprised as I was. We'll talk to the CEO of a company working in this area about the process for getting treatments approved. And we'll look at some of the stocks involved in this space as possible opportunities to invest in companies working to treat or even cure these diseases. But first, let's give you a check on the markets as stocks are mixed following the latest read on inflation that we got here this morning. We have the Nasdaq composite up about six tenths of a percent, the S&P 500 up three tenths of a percent, Dow Jones Industrial is just about flat, a hair to the downside. Let's bring in Mike Santoli for more on the market reaction to this morning's PCE number. Mike, I mean, it was about what we had forecast, but still hotter than, I guess, the, what the Fed wants to see. For sure, uh, Courtney. I would characterize the market response as kind of mild relief that it wasn't an upside surprise versus forecast. We've had two or three in a row inflation reports that did come in hotter uh, than anticipated and hoped. So this was at least on target. And it was it was warm in the areas we've known were going to be stubbornly so, like a lot of services, uh, things, a lot of inferred prices on financial services. So it seems if the market is not really uh, doing much with that number. However, Right before the report, we were looking at a one-third of a percent decline in the S&P 500. We're now up a third of a percent. So that's a decent swing. The two-year note yield went from 4.7 down to about 4.62. So it's obviously not a huge swing in either, in either way. But it does show you uh, that we're sort of checking off the box that the Fed's preferred inflation measure isn't any worse than we thought it was. And inflation's kind of bouncing around below 3 percent somewhere. All right, Mike, thank you very much. So why don't you stay right there as we bring in our next guest who says the data don't matter all that much. He says the Fed has a fiscal problem, not a rates problem. Keith Fitzgerald is the principal of the Fitzgerald Group. Keith, welcome. Good to have you with us. What do you mean it has a fiscal problem? Explain. Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, the government, take it or leave it, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, has a spending problem. As long as that continues, the Fed really has to struggle because they may as well be taking blood out of their left arm and putting it in their right arm. The markets are going to address this. So that's what I mean by that. So what does that leave us as an investor uh, to do when you see inflation coming in basically 2.8 uh, percent, a little higher maybe than the Fed would ideally like to see year over year? But the 0.4 rise in January is nothing to be terribly alarmed about. What should I do with my money now? Well, you've actually raised a very interesting point. I think now is the time to take a deep breath to stick with what you know. And that's the great companies, world-class companies that continue to put up great results, great numbers, regardless of what the Fed actually thinks it's going to do or what traders think the Fed's going to do. 
let's talk about one of your picks and let you make your thesis uh, known on Apple, which um, I think you think is a, is a very good buy at these prices, in part because it has now sort of junked its automobile uh, operation and gone all in, clearly, on AI. I do. I see this as another sort of jobs-like moment when he reduced, introduced the iPhone back in 2007, I think it was, if my memory serves. You know, this is a moment where you're going to see a pivot, something that is going to dramatically change the way the company is perceived. Tim Cook's been hinting at it. If you look behind the scenes, I think Apple is a lot more involved in AI than the world understands. And whatever happens in June at the developer, con the developer conference, I think is going to take a lot of people by surprise. So I see prices moving sharply higher, perhaps even 275 a share or so. That's pretty high compared to where we sit right now on Apple shares, yep. which are just above 180. Do you have a stake in Apple? Yes, I do. I own it personally. My family does, and our firm continues to recommend it to clients. Got it. Mike, when you look at, at a name like Apple, which has been an underperformer, we used to say, as goes Apple, so goes the rest of the market. That doesn't necessarily seem to be the case anymore. After the announcement, knowing that they're walking away from the car, but potentially putting some more firepower into AI, which has really driven a lot of market growth. Do you feel like maybe Apple's back in the game? We can use that as sort of this market sentiment marker. I would say it remains to be seen, Courtney. I mean, there have been periods of time when uh, it's hard to really remember, but when Apple's gone sideways for a year and a half and the rest of the market was up. So it's sometimes a bellwether and sometimes not. My big takeaway from the action of the first two months of this year is the, the market has answered some of the biggest criticisms thrown at it entering 2024. One, it's way too reliant on six or seven massive growth stocks, including Apple. Well, you've seen Apple falter. You've seen Alphabet falter and the rest of the market is is hanging in there and actually posting gains. The other one is the stock market is uh, overly dependent on soon rate cuts soon and deep ones. And we've had the revised outlook to say, nope, we're not getting a rate cut in March, maybe not till June or July and not many this year. And the market's hanging in there. And that's all because nominal growth has been good. Earnings have come back. Market is made gestures toward broadening out. I think that's really an important point that, Mike, you just made there, and that is the idea that the market has been able, um, against, you know, maybe the popular consensus, to make progress even though uh, interest rate cuts are not imminent. They're not coming in March, apparently. They may not come in uh, May, I think is the next one. Maybe not even until the latter half of the year. Uh, Keith Fitzgerald, let's go to one other stock you like, and that is Chevron. Um, what do you, what's your thesis there? Well, again, you know, I'm a big fan of keeping things really simple. This is a case where, you know, the backlash against EV for one reason or another, whether it's pricing, availability, manufacturer challenge, it doesn't matter what. But the point is we're going to need dinosaur juice for a lot longer than we think. The company is cash efficient balance sheet. They've returned a huge amount of cash to shareholders. They're expecting to produce three, four, five percent, maybe even more oil this year. High margin activity. 37 consecutive years of dividend. It's a solid holding that you can count on. Mm -hmm. Keith, thank you very much. Keith Fitzgerald, we appreciate it. Mike Santoli, you as well. Let's go now to uh, Emily Wilkins in Washington on uh, breaking news, efforts to fund the government avoid a shutdown. Emily. 
Hey, Tyler. Well, Congress is rushing to avoid a shutdown that is now set to start on Friday at midnight, and it's looking good for being able to avoid that. The House just now getting the votes needed to go ahead and pass that stopgap measure, kicking the can down the road to March 8th and then to March 22nd uh, for both pieces of government funding. It, that bill could now go to the Senate, where it might be able to actually pass today. Remember, you need all senators to agree to time limits if you want something to move quickly. That's seems like it does have the potential to happen. Um, at this point, Congress is moving quickly to try and get that stopgap in place, which means now the real big question, can they actually make these deadlines after moving the goalposts yet again? Can we actually see some full fiscal year spending bills by March 8th and March 22nd? Lawmakers on the Hill are confident, but we have heard that before, so we're continuing to watch this closely. I was, just going, I was just going to say, it feels like similar story. Different day, different year. Thank you very much, Emily Wilkins. Let's get to the bond market reaction to that latest inflation read. Rick Santelli joining us now from the Windy City. Hi, Rick. Hi, indeed. We had a lot of numbers this morning. <laughs> and let's hit some major highlights. Year over year, PCE core was something many were very anxious to monitor. And how did it show up? Well, as you look at this chart, which starts in January of last year, we now have 12 consecutive months of lower year-over-year -year PCE cores. You see that line moving down. Now, here's one of the rubs. If you open that chart to pre-COVID, you could see that even though we have come down, we are still a ways from where we were pre-COVID and we're still on our way to target 2%, but we're not quite there yet. As a matter of fact, if you continue to look at all the variables today, continuing claims also is a bit surprising. It came out over 1.9 million. We haven't done that since mid-November of last year. And But as you see on this chart, I went back to November of 21 because that's how close we are to levels going back that far. We definitely want to continue to monitor the slight increases we are starting to see in claims. They have been well-behaved, but we are now monitoring them with a fine-tooth comb. Finally, here's a chart year-to-date of two-year and 10-year on one chart. And there's several things I'd like to point out. Right now, we're at basically 462 in a two-year. Pre the number releases, we're 468. So we've had a decent drop. But on the session, we're only down two. And if you consider that right now, we are now looking at a 468 uh, pre-number, but four before the 431 pre on tens, now that moved down about eight base points. But here's what I want to say. If you look at the all-time high for 2024, we're now 10 basis points below that in twos, but we're up 37 on the year. If you look at tens, right now where it sits at 423, we're down nine when it comes to the high yield closes but we're up 35 on the year. You get what I'm saying. We're hugging up to higher levels, even though those numbers were, to many, just perfect with respect to inflation. Tyler, back to you. Rick, let me, let me just get your sort of for, put your forecasting hat on. As, you, as we sit there with the 10-year in the 420-somethings, is it your view that we're likelier to stay right around here in this sort of higher part of the band then go back to where we were a couple of months ago in the high threes. I absolutely do. I think that based on the way it's acted for 2024 and those ratios I pointed out, 
I think it's actually more likely that we will be more in a range of four and a quarter to four and a half mm. than we will be from anything under four up to four and a quarter. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli reporting for us. Meantime, coming up from Chile to Mexico and all the way to Europe, Chinese car brands are exploding in popularity. We'll look at why next. Plus, still to come in the program, an in-depth look at an issue that affects one in ten people here in the U.S. Rare diseases and conditions. Chances are you know someone afflicted. So on this rare disease day, we want to shine a spotlight on the people, the industry, and the treatments that are out there and may be coming. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Late last year, China's BYD passed Tesla to become the world's biggest selling electric car maker. But you won't find any BYDs on the streets in the U.S. So we sent Phil Lebeau to Santiago, Chile, to find out why Chinese brands are so popular there. Phil, I know very little about this car. You know, Courtney, we're here in a mall in Santiago, and this is the BYD Dolphin. This is the smallest BYD EV that is sold, though. It is the precursor to what will be coming out over the next year, which is the Seagull, which is an even smaller one that is expected to be priced for about $11,000. Here in Santiago, BYD entered the market last year. What about Tesla? They just entered the market earlier this month. In fact, we went to what you might call the Tesla Gallery. It's really more of a cube that had a Model 3 inside of it, though a few people were coming by and taking a look at it. You could go in and talk with some representatives about potentially buying a Tesla. In terms of South America, it's just starting to develop as an EV market. That's why Tesla's first market down here is Santiago, Chile, though they expect to expand over time. Global EV sales, if you take a look at the numbers last year, let's be clear, we're talking about pure electric vehicles. We're not talking about hybrids here. It was just under 9.5 million, 11% of all the vehicles that were sold last year. And yes, last year, Tesla was number one, selling 1.8 million. BYD number two at 1.6 million. The person who runs the BYD dealership here in Chile believes that they will gradually but steadily increase sales here. The reaction has been fantastic because it's a very strong brand with a new technology, electric vehicle cars, PHB cars. So the people are arriving to the stores. They are going to our, our new store to try to understand how is this new technology. And they have been listening too much about BYD in the world. 
As you take a look at shares of BYD and Tesla, we should point out that over the last year, they've roughly traded in tandem with each other. Not a surprise. You tend to see this. Two EV companies tend to be trading in the same way over a period of time. By the way, BYD did outsell Tesla in the fourth quarter. So you will hear some people say, BYD is number one worldwide. Well, we, we look at the sales on an annual basis. And last year, Tesla was still number one. Will that change this year? Likely, because BYD is growing sales dramatically in China. And as we know, Tesla has been much more judicious and has had to deal with the price wars that are going on in China. But now they're competing here in Chile, and we'll see it about increasingly in other parts of South America as well. I was Guys, just, back to you. I was just going to say, Phil, I'm struck by the prices. The BYD cars significantly less expensive than Tesla. I'm sort of surprised they've only sold 1.6 million of them. Well, they do sell a lot of hybrids. If you add in BYD's hybrid sales, which are even greater mm -hmm. than their pure electric vehicle sales, it's over 3 million. Mm. But they're growing the pure electric vehicles. And remember, they have cost advantages because of their size and scale. And Chinese automakers also have a number of inherent advantages as they've grown those businesses with government support in China. Question. We know about the relative price difference between the BYD and the Tesla. What do we know about the relative performance and or reliability of those cars, the BYDs? BYDs are fairly well regarded in terms of their reliability and their range. Now, having said that, Tyler, a lot of people in the U.S. will say, well, I haven't seen a BYD in the U.S. They would like to eventually sell in the U.S., but right now, if you build a vehicle in China and export it to the U.S., there's a 25% tariff that gets added on. So that's why you're not seeing BYDs in the U.S. yet. However, BYD is likely going to start manufacturing in Mexico at some point in the next four or five years. We haven't seen them announce officially where the manufacturing facility would be, but we know they're looking at it. And when that happens, that gives them entry into the U.S. through the North American Free Trade Agreement. That's really when the direct competition, aside from what we see in China, where BYD and Tesla do compete vigorously, but in terms of in the United States, that's when you'll see them go head to head. All right, Phil, thank you very much. Phil LeBeau reporting from Santiago, Chile. All right, uh, stay classy, Santiago. <laughs> exactly. All right, still to come, check out shares of Pfizer, the company holding its Oncology Innovation Day. And with today also being National Rare Disease Day, healthcare front and center this hour, we're going to take a look at the different ways investors can play the space, including gene editing pharmaceutical firm CRISPR. We'll talk to the CEO. Howard Lunch will be right back. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Welcome back to Power Lunch. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News Update. As expected, Donald Trump has appealed a Wednesday night ruling disqualifying him from the Illinois Republican primary ballot. A judge said the former president should be removed from the vote for his role in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. 
Mr. Trump's team called the move unconstitutional. A recently introduced bill to protect in vitro fertilization in the state of Alabama just passed with a commanding majority in the state's House. It now heads to the Alabama Senate for consideration. Lawmakers are responding to an outcry across the state and the country following the Alabama Supreme Court's decision to define frozen embryos as children. Several fertility clinics paused their IVF programs over legal fears in that state. And hundreds of items belonging to Sir Elton John sold for more than double their estimate at auction, rocketing to $20 million. Among the items that were up for grabs, a grand piano used by the Rocket Man, his prized classic Bentley, and a leopard print Rolex Daytona, which was encrusted with 36 uh, orange sapphires. I don't see it there yet. And apparently four dozen diamonds. There it is. That is one fancy timepiece. Back to you. There's a lot of bling going on there. Thank you very much, Bertha. Right. Well, still to come, our coverage of an issue that affects millions of Americans, rare diseases. Sounds kind of like an oxymoron, but we'll explain it when we speak to some influential names in the treatment space. That's next. As we had to break, a quick power check. On the positive side, Hormel up 13% beyond earnings. On the negative side, Excel Energy lower after a law firm alleged it is linked to the Texas wildfires. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Well, today is a leap day. It is also National Rare Disease Day, a day to bring awareness to rare diseases and to the many people and families affected by them. Joining us now, Peter Saltonstall, president and CEO of the National Organization of Rare Disorders, also known as NORD. And here on set with us, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, our friend, former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Peter, let me begin with you. What is a rare disease? How do you define it? Rare disease in the United States is defined as a population of patients under 200,000. Um, and that's, that's uh, the driver for the Orphan Drug Act. If you put all of those diseases with 200,000 or fewer cases combined, how many people are you talking about in the aggregate? Well, we say that there are 7,000 rare diseases and about 30 million people in America, one in 10 Americans that are impacted by rare diseases. So it's just, it's a significant number. So it's rare diseases are prevalent then. It's, they may be rare, but in, in some, they are quite prevalent. That is correct. That is correct. And I would say, Tyler, that, you know, the important thing here is that with the 7,000 rare diseases and the 30 million Americans, 95% of them now don't have an authorized or an approved FDA therapy. And so that's a real challenge. So we have 95% of the population who don't have a therapy. How costly? are these diseases in the aggregate, number one? And number two, are they normally life-threatening, life-limiting, or are they chronic and manageable in that sense? Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a physician, so I'll let Scott answer part mm -hmm. of that question, but I can tell you that they are economically a burden on the, on the economy and the country, actually, you know, because they are, the issue of being misdiagnosed happens to patients continually. I mean, we have most of our patients, it takes four to five years to get diagnosed. So there's a lot, there's a lot of healthcare costs that goes into that before there's even a, a therapy developed. So it's an expensive, uh, it's an expensive and a timely and um, you know a, a complicated um, issue for patients. 
Scott, are rare diseases increasing? It feels like I'm hearing about them more, or is it just the awareness of such is what we're hearing about? Yeah, I think it's awareness, and I think it's also that more rare diseases are addressable now, so now we're talking about them. Um, you know, NORD has been instrumental in getting in place incentives for companies to try to develop drugs for these these diseases, including the Orphan Drug Act, getting that implemented initially and also sustaining it. I think we're in an environment now where it's more difficult to get policy uh, to confer incentives for the development of some therapeutics for these rare diseases. And what we're looking at is super orphan diseases, you know, diseases that can affect thousands and sometimes hundreds of patients, where you now have the modalities to try to treat some of these diseases where the economic incentives aren't always there, notwithstanding the very high prices that are charged for these drugs. It could still be very uneconomical to develop therapeutics for these indications. And we're not, we don't have the same policy solutions for these challenges that we had years ago because you don't have the same consensus in policy circles, and particularly diseases where you have sort of a common phenotype. So patients have a common experience, but there might be a different genetic variation for even individual patients where you now have platforms like um, siRNA or oligonucleotides where you could literally change the drug for each individual patient to attack some of these diseases like Batten's disease. Those are the places where it's very hard not only to get the incentives in place, but even the regulatory path for some of these, some of these potential cures so and certainly treatments. how do you, you're on the board of Pfizer, right? How do you incentivize a large pharmaceutical company to uh, try and develop a drug for one of these rare diseases when they know that it may be 150 people in the United States who might take it. Yeah, I think the challenge for a bigger drug maker getting into some of these spaces is when you look at some of these drugs, if you're talking about just hundreds of patients that might suffer from a condition, the sort of political backlash to charging the high prices that need, you need to sustain the investment and get a return on the investment is very hard to do inside a big drug maker because they're more uh, prone to getting the sort of political recriminations over the high prices. So you see this be largely the domain of smaller companies, which I think have more latitude to charge those prices. So you've seen in recent years large companies get out of these orphan spaces, and that does worry me that you see capital coming out. And I'm talking particularly about the super rare diseases, where there still, I think, is a market failure. And also, it's very hard to do second-to-market innovation in some of these indications. So what happens is after a therapy comes to market and you treat everyone with an inherited condition, for example, the number of patients who will be newly diagnosed each year with that condition isn't enough to sustain someone else coming into that space. And so some of these categories remain monopolies in perpetuity because you just can't incentivize second-to-market innovation that would bring down prices. Let me, let me ask you a question about the regulatory environment, Scott, and I'll come back to you, Peter, in just a moment. Um, I'm guessing that the, that the regulatory regime is set up to, to test drugs for the broadest effect, efficacy and safety for the broadest number of people. And here you have, by definition, conditions where there may be 150, 200, 500 people in the United States. How do you test drugs mm. in such a small sample set? Yeah, look, it's very hard, and that's why we, when I was there, and FDA has continued to try to build what we call natural history models where you can randomize against what is perceived to be the natural history of patients with a condition so you don't have to randomize to placebo. But when you're talking about these modalities where you can individualize the treatment for patients based on their unique genetic profile, where they have sort of a common phenotype, like Batten's disease, but every patient might have a, a very small difference in the genetic variation that drives the disease, and you want to deliver the drug, you want to tweak the drug for each individual patient, that's very hard because the regulatory model um, tries to incentivize the standardization of treatments mm -hmm. and not the variation for each individual patient. That's where we need, I think, some novel thinking about the regulatory path. Peter, I, I read that 80% of rare diseases are genetically based. Uh, does that 
provide us, now that we are mapping genes and with technologies like CRISPR and others, we can actually target genetic uh, malformations or, or, or whatever they are, we can target them. Is that a point of promise for the treatment of rare disease? And if so, how big a point of promise is it? Yeah, I really think, again, I, and Scott, what Scott just said about how, how <coughs> drugs are being developed now, I think the genetic uh, issue for us really, really is the future and the frontier. And what we're seeing now more and more is the opportunity for people to be able to get something basically just for them, if you will, which, is, which does still create the problem that we were just talking about, which is much smaller populations. And I, there is not a, uh, there's not a policy or regulatory forum right now that allows us to be able to do that really effectively. So I think while it's the future is there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the regulatory front to be able to make sure that we can get drugs approved and then paid for for these smaller populations. In other words, if I have a small population and I'm tweaking the drug so it works only for you or essentially only for you, then you become, in a way, the, the test case for that drug, right? You become the exactly guinea pig. Right. Exactly right. Yeah, these are these N of one diseases, and that's what mm. we often refer to. And it might not be an N of one. It might be five or six patients with one unique genetic variation. What you need to have is a pathway that allows um, companies to study sort of an aggregation of these patients and then extrapolate beyond that mm. to other patients that have the common phenotype. They have the common syndrome, but they might have different genetic variations that might not have been included in the clinical trial. And that's where the regulatory mm. hiccup is right now in the willingness of regulators but to allow that extrapolation. The system isn't set up for that. No. And it's been something that's been talked about literally for about 10 years right now, how to create a viable regulatory model for this. That's where the real opportunity is for these super rare diseases. And a lot of them are inherited diseases that children are born with. So you, there's a really compelling desire to try to get treatments. So notwithstanding the economic model, which I think also is a barrier to the, the investment in these spaces, the regulatory model does become also an impediment. Mm -hmm. Wow. Let me add to, can I just add to what Scott just said? Because I think there's one other really important point, and that's that they're trying to find those patients as well. And one of the things that we've done in the last couple of years is developed a, a broad network called the Centers of Excellence, where we've now connected 41 of the top academic medical centers around the country and are connecting all of those clinicians via uh, a thing called Nord Central. So if they see something in a unique patient, they can then reach out onto that network and ask other clinicians if they see something like that so that we can start to bring, as Scott was just saying, some of those small populations, identify those people and bring them together. It makes a lot of sense. Information sharing really paramount to solving some of these very difficult problems. Really important conversation. Peter Saltonstall, thank you very much. And Dr. Gottlieb, stick around. We're going to have much more with you to come. Still ahead, we'll continue our special coverage of Rare Disease Day with a leading name in gene editing, CRISPR Therapeutics CEO Sam Kulkarni joins us when Power Lunch returns. Welcome back to Power Lunch. As we continue to mark Rare Disease Day, let's take a closer look now at companies trying to do good and do well with treatments for these diseases. Look at Crenetics Pharmaceuticals, up 115% in a year. See that 
Big spike in September, fairly straight up there. That was on positive news regarding a treatment of a rare hormone disorder. Bridge Biopharma has also tripled in the past year with a big jump last July when each drug to treat a rare heart disease showed positive results in a trial. CRISPR Therapeutics is another name involved in the rare disease space. You might have heard of it, seeing some pretty big gains over the last year as well, up over 70% in a year. So joining us now is Samara Kalkarni, he's CEO of CRISPR Therapeutics, and Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor is still with us. We should say that Dr. Gottlieb is also a partner at the venture firm New Enterprise Associates, which is an early investor in CRISPR. Thank you very much for being here, Sam. Really appreciate it. I mean, obviously, we had a very fascinating conversation. I don't know if you were able to hear all of it, but it's sort of about the hurdles to getting some of these drugs through when it comes to regulatory or otherwise just being able to invest the money that it takes to tackle some of these issues. Where are we right now with your company, with CRISPR, when it comes to tackling rare diseases? Yeah, thank you for having me, and uh, it's gl- it's great that you're recognizing World Rare Disease Day. Uh, in the last segment, uh, the speaker was mentioning that there's 7,000 rare diseases, and what's disheartening is, you know, 80 to 90 percent of those rare diseases do not have a good treatment available for those patients. And this is where technologies like CRISPR come in. Uh, we've had a great year, uh, the last great 12 months, because we had a drug approved for sickle cell disease and thalassemia, two of the more well-known rare diseases with our partner Vertex, um, but that's just the start. You know, what we have with the CRISPR technology is a programmable and scalable platform which can apply to many rare diseases and not just provide a treatment, but provide a transformative treatment for these rare diseases. When it comes to what you're expecting going forward, what can, what can we look forward to? Give us some good news on the horizon. Are, are, is there research that's just getting so very close to offering some new treatments for some of these individuals? Yeah, Scott will attest, the, the science is moving at breakneck speed, and it's not just CRISPR Therapeutics, but the other companies in the space as well doing work with rare diseases. We're working with a number of rare diseases, uh, for instance, rare forms of cancer, uh, like T-cell lymphomas. We're working type 1 diabetes. We're working on rare autoimmune diseases like lupus nephritis and also neuromuscular diseases. And the science is moving forward very quickly. The editing is working. We're able to take this CRISPR tool and apply it to a specific location of the genome and make a precise edit that fundamentally uh, fixes the disease. And that's very exciting to see. Of course, there's some challenges, uh, such as delivering it to the right organs. You know, if you only want to edit the liver or only want to edit the brain, you know, we're trying to optimize the delivery solutions. But but the, the signs are very encouraging across all these therapeutic areas. Yeah, just to build on that, you know, I started working at FDA back in 2000 as a senior advisor to the commissioner, and it was just when monoclonal antibodies were becoming therapeutics, getting approved, and they were usually used in sort of third line in treatment of cancer where there was no other available therapy. If you would have come to me at that point in time and said, one day we'll be using monoclonal antibodies to treat high cholesterol, I would have looked at you like you were crazy because there's so much complexity involved in those platforms. I think the same thing applies today. I think the gene therapies right now are being used in these rare indications and these significant unmet medical needs. But as we get better vehicles for delivering these, as we get better ways to precondition patients before we deliver the gene therapy, you're going to start to see these these platforms migrate into more routine conditions and, and applications like regenerative medicine. So these are just the early innings. I think we look at the profound impact things like CRISPR therapeutics has had in diseases like sickle cell disease and thalassemia, 
Uh, I think you're going to see these kinds of platforms, these modalities be used in a wider range of diseases, not just rare diseases, but more common ailments as well. So, Sam, I think I heard you say, basically, that with certain, in certain conditions, with certain gene editing, you can actually cure people. Absolutely. And we don't use the word cure lightly. Um, you know, in some cases, the patients are symptom free for the rest of their lives, for instance. Um, and, and why we're able to do that is because we're going to the root of the disease. You heard from the, you know, previously that 80% of these rare diseases have some form of genetic basis. And with the whole human genome sequencing project, we really understand what causes the disease, what's the genetic aberration that's resulting in the patient having the disease. And so when you can go to the root cause uh, at the genomic level, you potentially can cure the disease or at least ameliorate all symptoms for life. Um, and the other part of this is, you know, uh, we talked about some of the big pharmas not jumping into rare diseases because the market's not there. Uh, CRISPR is a scalable and programmable way of developing therapies, which could make it much more efficient to develop drugs in rare diseases because you're using the same chassis, but changing the zip code of where in the genome you're making a change. So if you have a regulatory framework that allows you to use a mod modular approach, you could develop drugs in a much more efficient fashion that would allow you to make the business case and bring, develop it even for ultra rare diseases um, and still deliver shareholder value. How hard is it um, when you're dealing with rare diseases? How hard is it to get a treatment approved because the population is so small? If you see what I'm saying, in other words, you don't have thousands of people on whom you can you can test your medicine or your treatment. Yeah, it's it's challenging if you have to do a randomized control trial. And as uh, you know, when Scott was commissioner, he he would attest to it, which is some novel forms of thinking about developing drugs. One is using natural history. You know, if you have a population that you know is declining in a certain way uh, and you, it's predictable because of the disease and you administer your medicine and that decline doesn't happen, then you have a built-in control uh, for your clinical trial so you don't have to do a randomized control. The second is, in many cases, the patient themselves are the control arm. So mm -hmm. in our sickle cell trial, uh, you have patients come in with over three or four hospitalizations per year, or they would end up in the ER before they got the therapy. And after they got the therapy, they had no more hospitalizations for in most cases. And similarly in thalassemia, they would come in requiring two units of blood every mm -hmm. month. And then after the transfusion, after the therapy, they didn't need any more transfusions. So these are novel ways of thinking about developing drugs that we didn't have in the past. Sam, if we can, very quickly before we let you go, this is CNBC after all. And so we started out the segment talking about sort of the investment case here. But again, as we've reiterated over and over again, these, these drugs, researching them, deploying them are very, very expensive. Can you make the investment case for why it makes sense for us to do this from a financial and economic perspective? Of course, we know it's, it's for, the, for the good of the human race, of course, but from an economic and financial perspective, can you tell us why this is a good investment? Absolutely, and we're redoubling our efforts at CRISPR Therapeutics because of two reasons. One is, with a platform like CRISPR, you're taking a deterministic approach, so you have less failures and less attrition in the drugs you're developing. And the second is, as I said, it's modular and programmable, so if you develop the platform, then you just have to replace the, the genetic uh, oligonucleotide for each disease. So what that does is reduce the cost of development. You know, in many cases mm -hmm. for big pharma, it costs $2 billion to develop a drug. 
And you could do that for much less if the regulatory environment is is changing and allows for this. Mm -hmm. And in which case, even if it's a small market, you still can make a very positive return. And then you have not just the possibility of return one asset, but tens of diseases that you're going to cure with a platform like CRISPR. This is so fascinating. Sam Kulkarni, thank you very much for joining us. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is here and he's sticking around. Alrighty, coming up, shares of Novo, Novo, Novo Nordisk are up 70% over the past year. Ozempic demand continuing to soar. Uh, and during February, we celebrate Black Heritage. Here's M&T Bank CEO Renee Jones sharing his story. As a black CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I may be an exception. But it's important to remember that there are many exceptional people who create positive change and inspire others every day. Black Heritage Month gives us that opportunity to celebrate the many exceptional, absolutely extraordinary people in our black and brown communities across America. It's estimated up to 5 million Americans are taking them, a staggering figure considering the weekly injections need refrigeration and possibly a lifetime commitment. For Faith Ann and her parents, they were worth a shot. Where do you give yourself the shot? I give shot? myself the shot in my stomach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't even like it. You can hear the click. It's done. Wow. Can you just tell me what you're on and how long you've been on? I've been on Manjaro since May. Ozempic since July. Whatever she gives oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> he's been on, he's, no, he switches. He goes between Manjaro and Ozempic. They're all in a class of drugs called GLP-1 receptor agonists, which mimic naturally occurring hormones in the body. GLP stands for a glucagon-like peptide. And what it does is it helps the body regulate insulin and glucose or blood sugar, but it also helps the stomach feel full faster and longer. And it also affects appetite centers in the brain so that people have less of a drive to eat. And there are reports that it helps with what we've come to call food noise. Well, that was a clip from Big Shot, the Ozempic Revolution, premieres tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific here on CNBC. A mega hit GLP-1 drugs like Ozempic and Mujaro have completely changed the way society approaches weight loss. And Dr. Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, Pfizer board member, and contributor to CNBC, who is featured in the documentary, is still here with us. How big are these drugs likely to be? And, and they're not only finding that they're effective against weight gain or bringing on weight loss, but a whole host of other conditions, potentially even including dementia. Yeah, look, I think these are going to be a profound medical advance on par with maybe the introduction of statins, where you're going to change the, the trajectory of morbidity and mortality associated with a whole range of diseases. And we think about this as a battle of what is the best drug. It's going to become a battle of what is the best label, which drug ends up getting the best label for trying to prove some of these secondary gains. This is going to be a very important year for answering that question. We saw the select data that Novo Nordisk um, ran a big trial looking at a substantial reduction in cardiovascular risk with patients who had a previous heart attack or stroke. Uh, FDA and the EMA, the European regulators, are now are looking at that data. They're probably going to approve a change to the label of Wagovi um, to, look to, to demonstrate cardiovascular risk reduction. And Lilly's also going to have important data with their drug, Zepan, this year, looking at, for example, reduction in the incidence of sleep apnea or heart failure associated with the use of their drug. 
collectively between Lilly and Novo, they have more than 15 trials underway that are sort of registration quality trials, looking at things like, you know, re reducing the incidence of osteoarthritis, of fatty liver disease, of dementia. If we continue to show these secondary benefits of the weight reduction that these drugs achieve and get that information into the label, I think it's going to make these drugs very compelling and very hard for insurers not to pay for if you're having that magnitude of public health impact. That was, that was going to be my question. Is this going to make them uh, harder for insurers not to cover, number one, and ultimately will it bring down the cost? Well, I think it's going to make it impossible for insurers not to pay for it. If you have a drug where you have a cohort of patients who have significant cardiovascular disease, have had a stroke or a heart attack, and you can achieve a 20% reduction in the second stroke or heart attack, and these are patients who have been maximally treated with statins and mm -hmm. hypertension medication, that's such a profound benefit. The, and the benefit was seen early in that trial as well. So you didn't leave, need to leave the patients on the drug for a year. You saw it within the first months. That's so profound, and that's going to achieve so much savings for the healthcare system overall. That I think they'll, that they'll leap in. Right. And, that, yeah. and also the productivity gains. As, as people lose a, a profound amount of weight who are obese, they're going to perform better at work. They're going to have less joint disease, less osteoarthritis. Fewer, fewer days right. missed from illness or, or debility or whatever. And that data will start to get into the drug labels. The other thing that's going to happen over the course of 2024 and 2025 is both Lilly and Novo and other companies as well have other drugs in development. So Novo has a drug that's a dual-acting agonist, both, acts on both DACA and GLP-1, Cagrisemo. They're going to have data in 2025. Um, Lilly has a drug, retitrutide, which is a so-called triple agonist. And these look like better sort of second and third generation iterations on these drugs. So, you know, this is, we're in the early innings of the innovation wow. in this space. This is fascinating stuff. I cannot wait to see this documentary. A great half hour. Tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern time. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, for joining us for this half hour. We will be right back. What a wonderful hour it has just been. Let's bring you up to date on the Dow. Basically on 007, James Bond numbers down 26 <laughs> at this hour. The NASDAQ uh, and S&P in the green. Thanks for watching this special Power Lunch on Rare Diseases. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.